Hello and welcome to the Cardiff Reader Podcast. I'm your humble host, Benedict Garman, and this time I'm joined by Ben Stewart, author of Don't Trust, Don't Fear, Don't Beg, the unbelievable true story of the Arctic 30. four-month detention of a multinational group of Greenpeace activists. That group, known as the Arctic 30, was arrested by Russian authorities. All the supporters out there are calling for our release. Thank you so much. You give us hope. You give us strength. Welcome, Ben. Hi. So tell us a little bit about the context around the Arctic 30 and the setting of your book, as it were. Well, it seems like such a long time ago now, but um, back in September 2013, um, 30 Greenpeace activists on board the ship Arctic Sunrise sailed about 200 nautical miles north of uh, the Arctic Circle. Um, their intention was to do a direct action protest on the Prius Lomnia oil rig, an oil rig owned and operated by Gazprom. So it was effectively Putin's company drilling for oil in the Arctic. That rig was about to be the first to pump oil from the icy waters of the Arctic and therefore would have, well, the intention from them was to spark a new Arctic oil rush. Greenpeace were very concerned about this and wanted to shine a light on it and focus global attention on it. So this ship, the Arctic Sunrise, sailed towards it and the intention was that they would hang a one-ton circular or cylindrical survival pod off the rig and by doing that stop it operating and stay there for as many days or weeks as possible and some people were going to live in the pod and communicate um, from there using state-of-the-art communication systems. It didn't work out like that. There was a very violent response from um, the Russians. Um, Shots were fired and uh, the guys had to retreat. So far, so normal to a certain extent with a Greenpeace action. Um, What happened the next day was extraordinary and began this saga that became a huge global news story. Um, One of the um, activists, Frank Hewitson, who's um, one of the main characters in the book, um, is standing out on the deck on a beautiful evening, 6 p.m. The sun's setting, the sky's turning orange, and he sees a small black dot um, rise from the um, from the Coast Guard vessel uh, protecting the oil rig. He thinks it's a wasp. Then he thinks, no, it can't be a wasp in front of my face. We're above the Arctic Circle. He then sees it's a helicopter and thinks it's probably a media helicopter and then thinks, well, Sky or CNN aren't going to be this far north. And then as the helicopter comes above the Arctic sunrise and a commando looks down, throws down a rope and uh, repels down that rope with a rifle, he realises that commandos are boarding his ship very quickly, 20 commandos are swarming across the Greenpeace ship, the Arctic Sunrise. It's taken over by these kids in balaclavas, these Russian commandos, and the ship is sailed to the mainland. Still, we think, um, well, you know, they'll probably be released and sent you know, home to Norway and Britain, etc. But no, Putin takes a specific interest in this case and ensures that the guys are thrown in jail and charged with piracy, carrying a minimum of 10 years and a maximum of 15 years in jail. They're thrown into Mamansk CISO-1 isolation jail, a former mental asylum. And so begins a huge global campaign to release them. I won't spoil the ending, but, um, uh, but when we found out what actually happened inside those jail, those jail cells, that in a sense is the core of the book, what it's like to be in a Russian jail as a prisoner of conscience held for something you believed in when Putin wants to keep you there for a long time. So, so tell us a bit about the international reaction, because it seems like the whole world was involved in some way or another, and it became such a huge deal globally. 
yeah, it was, it was a surprise to be honest. But, um, you know, I remember at one point, um, being in, we set up a hub in London and, um, where we based, uh, a big part of the release operation. And, um, you know, I remember one occasion when someone says, when I was running the communications aspect, so the media online stuff of the, of the global campaign. And I remember at one point someone says to me, oh, can you, um, can you write a briefing for the Pope? He wants a briefing on the Arctic 30 situation. I remember saying, God's sakes, I haven't got time to write an effing briefing for the Pope. I'm too busy. And then stopped and everyone stared at me. And I was thinking, okay, if the Pope needs a briefing, the Pope needs a briefing. You know, it's one of those moments where you kind of step back and you think, okay, this is getting big. And I remember another occasion when, you know, we got contacted by Paul McCartney. And Paul McCartney said, look, I want to get involved in this. And someone said, can you help Paul McCartney write a letter to Vladimir Putin? Vladimir Putin has said he's the world's biggest Beatles fan. And that and, and the he'll, he'll read it, you know, sitting down and thinking, oh, how do you write a letter with Paul McCartney? You know, I'm a massive Beatles nut myself. But, you know, it happened. And, you know, every day we were waking up and seeing this story on the front pages. Now, that was great because I remember Alex Harris, one of the British detainees, got smuggled a letter out of jail. And we can talk about how they smuggle letters out of jail later. But she said, my fear here is that the story dies. My fear here is that I will languish for 15 years in jail and people will forget about me. So our job was to keep that story live. And we did. Um, but at the same time, that presented profound problems for us as well. You know, the bigger the story, the further you have to fall. And there's one episode that I write about in the book where the Putin regime um, seemingly plants um, a story that heroin was found on the Arctic sunrise after they were arrested. And of course, this was suddenly a huge global news story because it was so familiar to people like the story of the Arctic 30 and we had to battle that kind of thing so you know for us I, I, you know I confess at times we felt we felt out of our depth we felt that we were kind of playing a geopolitical game of chess against some pretty experienced and dare I say bad people um, and and we were worried that we were not equipped to to win that game why, why do you think this was the action that became the storm? Like, there have been so many direct actions about so many different things across, you know, internationally. Um, and yet, this one, Putin almost took a personal interest in. And this one blew up into something kind of incredible. God, I mean, it'd be interesting, wouldn't it, too? I mean, there was, we don't really know much about the mind of Putin during this, although we had one source very high up in, the, um, in Moscow, that was giving us information. Um, and there was another occasion where uh, John Sovan, my, my boss, um, was asked to meet a Russian figure who used to work in the Kremlin, who I think was acting as a conduit between the Kremlin. And I, so I write about this in the book. They, um, they went out to a hotel near Buckingham Palace and um, John thought he was having a couple of drinks and uh, about seven in the morning after having 28 whiskeys between them with this guy, he stumbled into our office, went to the toilet and threw up, not having gone to bed and managed through a drunken haze to explain to me that he just had to sit up drinking with this guy while he got trying to get a sense of where Putin was coming from. And I think really, you know, we were, it was that moment before the invasion of the Ukraine where there was this sense that Putin wanted to assert um, Russian power over perceived Western interests. And I genuinely think 
in the Kremlin that they thought that Greenpeace was a tool of the CIA and MI6 trying to do down Russian economic development. It's a conspiracy theory um, that is well established in Russia that, that supposedly Western groups, and Greenpeace isn't a Western group, it's a global group, but supposedly Western groups um, are in fact agents of security services. It's paranoia, Probably, essentially. It's paranoia. And and so I think, you know, there was, and, and, um, and I think... Putin wanted to teach the West a lesson. So we were representatives in a sense of, of governments that we are fighting all the time. You know, the idea that, um, God, you know, conservative government, I mean, hate this you know, as much as anybody here. Um, anyway, so for whatever reason it was, Putin took a specific interest in this. And I think, why did it capture global attention? I don't know. I mean, 30 people held in a Russian jail. I think because the charges said that they were going to be held for minimum 10 years, um, it really it, it felt like a big deal. It felt like they were hostages, you know. And then, you and know, maybe it was such an absurd and disproportionate response as well, like to, yeah. to activists that kind of jail time. I think it was, yeah. And then you had, um, you know, we found a way to smuggle letters out from those guys who were in jail, and um, and therefore, I mean, we, you know, in the book, I give the individual who helped us a pseudonym called Mr. Babinski, but it was somebody else who, um, who managed to help us smuggle those letters out. And so therefore the Arctic 30 were getting letters out that we were slapping on the front page of newspapers around the world where they were talking about their experiences in these cells held with murderers, because in the ruling's jail was that you were held with people who faced similar sentences to you, you know, 10, 15 years, that's murder and manslaughter. Um, and so the Arctic 30 were telling their own stories to the public around the world through this, this Babinski channel, getting information and letters out. And this, I think, really helped their cause and humanized them. And, um, and, and they weren't, you know, sort of um, quasi-terroristic, eco-hippie warrior, bad people, etc., or whatever. You know, sometimes some media try to characterize them. They were just normal people from Somerset or Connecticut or Buenos Aires who cared about something and found themselves in this situation. You had everyone from the youngest 21-year-old Camilla Spezial from, from Argentina who hadn't really left Argentina before. You know, some of her friends were on a gap year, um, you know, going to India and she found herself in a Russian jail right through to the oldest 61-year-old Pete Wilcox, the captain, who is a veteran of 30, 40 years of direct action, was the captain of the Greenpeace ship Rainbow Warrior, where it was bombed and sunk by the French Secret Services, and his friend Fernando Pereira was killed. So you have these vast kind of differences in experience, but they were all human beings. And that, I think, came across. And our job in the release campaign was really to humanise and to keep the story alive. So when, when you, after releasing the book then, how, how did those members of the Arctic 30 respond to it? Because I remember generally it seems like they're all, you know, they all maintain a sort of law loyalty throughout to Greenpeace and to their motive and all that kind of stuff but there was one guy I remember especially you refer to um, who wasn't happy with Greenpeace handling <clears throat> the whole thing um, how's that kind of developed and how did the rest of them respond to your book um, well those I've spoken to were um, seemed happy with it uh, and I was really careful um, you know to to check um, you know that they were okay in telling their story and some of their particular stories, you know, where, you know, they had a traumatic time in jail and they were okay. I mean, I interviewed, you know, I got 40 hours of interviews um, from people and things that they didn't want to talk about, some of the more traumatic experience they didn't talk about. So it doesn't, you know, they don't make it into the book, but, you know, there's a lot of stuff in there um, about how difficult it was being in jail. Yes, there were a couple of people um, who, you know, 
really were unhappy with Greenpeace as an organisation for, for, for the way that it played out, particularly, you know, getting arrested and put in jail potentially for, um, um, for so long. And um, I haven't, um, haven't heard anything particularly, you know, negative um, uh, from them. And I, you know, the passages where I mentioned them, I sent them to them and you know, um, said, you know, what would you think about this, etc. Um, but, you know, inevitably, you know, the story is in a sense told through the eyes of the people that wanted to talk about it and wanted to tell me about um, about their experiences. And I tried very hard to make sure that that was, you know, a, a, a gender mix and try to get, you know, the views of, of the young women uh, yeah, I think well. I think that really comes across. And, and you very clearly made the book about them rather than yourself. Mm. But on, on a personal level, how did the whole experience ex- affect you and like impact your perspectives and any relationships that you had? Well, it was it was a really really difficult time. Um, you know, it was it was it was several months um, of um, extraordinarily hard work, um, and you know, nothing compared to being in a Russian jail at all. But you know, we um, we were working sort of sixteen hours a day every day for weeks and weeks and weeks without a single uh, day off. And we were scared. We were really scared that we'd lost them and that we wouldn't see them um, for years. And it was difficult. It was quite difficult on our, you know, families and loved ones as well. So they didn't really see us, and it was all we thought about. And we, you know, we became completely um, obsessed by it. And you know, I think all of us, um, um, you know, I remember going down the pub a couple of times with the team, and nobody was sleeping. You know, everyone was sort of. Um, their relationships were suffering, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but um, looking back now, it was we all learned a hell of a lot about campaigning and organisation as well. And, you know, stress again, you know, we just had a difficult time at work. And it's personally difficult as well because we were friends with lots of the guys. But, you know, the people in jail themselves, you know, they when they lay awake not being able to sleep looking at the ceiling in their cells they thought that they would not get out before their parents died or they wouldn't see their kids grow up or they wouldn't have kids when they wanted to have kids etc etc you know that was the real and actually their families I think the people who suffered more than anybody in this were actually the families of the people in jail and they had a really difficult time um, because it felt hopeless at times. You know, how do you persuade? When we felt that, you know, when, for example, this story came through from the FSB, which is the new KGB, that that they uh, they had supposedly found heroin on the ship, we thought, wow, these guys are serious about keeping our guys in jail for a long time, and you feel so hopeless in that kind of scenario. You know, where, how do you how do you take on and beat Putin? You know, and um, so it's really difficult for fans. Yeah. Um, so it's your first book, and immediately you received interest from film producers. You got your foreword by Paul McCartney, who you mentioned earlier. How do you go from zero to 100 like that? Because <laughs> it's a really good story. Um, I mean, you know, it, it, the I remember speaking to some of the guys um, about their experiences in jail and being astounded by what it was like to, to live in these cells and be the hierarchy in Russian prison cells, you know, and you know, these, this great prison literature like Papillon and Midnight Express and things like that, you know, really work because it's fascinating to think what it's like in jail. And I remember thinking there is an amazing climate change campaigning story to be told through the experiences of people in jail here, if I can just capture these stories that people are telling me. And, um, and I did, and I was lucky. And, you know, maybe I 
told it in a vaguely functional fashion. So, um, you know, so filmmakers um, thought, wow, that works. I was very lucky. I had, there was um, five or six filmmakers approached me, but then I got a, a call out of the blue from David Putnam, who made, actually, who made Midnight Express, one of my top three films of all time, and said that he had read an early manuscript. This is before it was published. Um, and that um, he um, had never, he thought he'd never come out of retirement to make another film, but he decided that he had to do this, and he has assembled a fantastic team. I'm in the rather odd position now where, you know, I'm having a book I wrote made into a film by um, Lord David Putnam, um, and that is, you know, it's really, it's really exciting. He's a climate change campaigner himself. He gets it. But he really gets, um, he gets this story as well. I think he wants to make something that inspires the next generation of people to really step up and be counted on issues that they care about. Um, now the most important thing for me is that it tells a story well, it tells a story with integrity, um, and that it, um, I suppose that it, there are, I can't think of many good films that have been made that relate to climate change. Inconvenient Truth was all right. It was a documentary. Um, but, you know, no one's nailed it on this huge, you know, defining 21st century issue. Maybe this will be the one. Maybe this will be the one. Yeah. So that's in the pipeline. Um, and is there anything you can kind of tell us about that? Any teasers, any exclusives, uh, where you're at with uh, casting, where you're at with sort of development? Um, I bet I'm not um, at the moment, but there's, um, yeah, I mean, the, the timeline I think is, you know, hopefully to have something finished by next summer, um, 2017. Uh, the aim is to, you know, this is not a small project. This is a big project um, with a lot of very, very serious people um, involved. I'm just trying to think of anything that I can tell you that I'm allowed to tell you, but I can't really think of. Um, I can't really think of anything. Are you writing like, the script yourself? No, 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 no. And that's a very good job, I'm sure. Um, I'll see it soon. I'll see it soon. Um, weeks, not months. Um, I think uh, they've got a really, really um, good. A uh, good team working on that, actually. Are we allowed um, to know any names or not really? Nope, not at <laughs> the moment. Uh, not at the moment. Um, but it's, um, yeah, I mean, one of the things, obviously, with films is it's very difficult to get the money um, to get them made. But David Putnam is a very well-connected figure. This is a very serious project, and I'm hoping that, that is, that's actually not going to be a problem um, on this one. Okay, so uh, back to but how did you how did you approach the writing? Because I imagine you know I'm speaking to you now. I assume you're in Greenpeace offices. I am, yeah. And you must just be insanely busy. Like when did you when did you find time well, to write this I, book? I um when in the middle of this campaign. I remember um my boss John Sobin says to me like you know how long can we do this for? How long can you do this for? And I you know I was like well I can keep going at this intensity. You know how long how long it takes? You know weeks, months, a year, but, you know, just, I just need a couple of months away from this shit when it's done. Um, and he said, yes, that's fine. So when they eventually did get out, I held him to that. And, you know, this couple of months, profoundly, I was entitled to anyway with all the weekends, etc. Um, and um, I went away with my partner for three weeks to, um, you know, reconnect. Um, and then so I had five weeks left. And I just thought, I'm going to, do it. I'm going to try and do this thing in that five weeks. So in fact, I didn't get away from the story. <laughs> Quite the opposite. I delved, much, delved further into it. It was possible because I did, I did all these interviews with the protagonists. And like I said, that was about 40 hours. And then 
very kindly some Greenpeace volunteers offered to transcribe those interviews. So I was able to take myself away to um, a rural retreat with about you know a ten centimetre thick pile of um, of accounts and go through. I had um, three coloured markers. I think they were red, orange, and green, or whatever. And um, I went through and I highlighted you know stories in red um, that might make it in the book. Stories in green that should make it in the book. Stories in amber that should make it in the book, and 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 then stories in green that had to go in. And there were so many amazing stories that I found. I just I just I'll concentrate on the green stuff. And even then, I had to like really edit ruthlessly um, and get rid of stuff. And so I I then created you know a narrative of those stories, and um, and in a sense then had to. I don't know. I then had to do a job of writing to bring the whole thing together and make it um, and make it coherent. And so it's a, it is in a sense a series of chronological anecdotes of things that were happening to people that, taken as a whole, is one big anecdote, story, tale, fable, etc. And um, and that was the method that I used. I mean, you know, I don't know whether there's a book that tells you how to write a non-fiction book, but I was just making that up as I went along. It was like, right, I've got you know. I've got 10 centimetres thick, was like hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of pages of A4 of testimony. I'm going to pick out the stuff that I find interesting and engaging, ensuring that it's the stuff taken as a whole that tells the whole story, um, you know, from beginning to end. And, um, and actually, on the first draft, within it, there was a lot about my experiences on the campaign to get them out. And then I showed that to some friends and they said um, it jarred. They said it jarred when it got to bits where, where I would write and then I did this and I did that and I felt this. And it, it, I think it felt like, you know, it, I didn't have a place in that book. Um, it, it was odd to be in a Russian jail cell and suddenly have a first person account of um, what it was like in London in a hub. So just, you know, and quite frankly, my experiences were in no way as interesting as being held with, you know, murderers and, um, you know, and, and these, these insane things that people tell me about being in a Russian prison cell, about the communication systems and, you know, the hierarchy and the mafia bosses that run the prison. And then er, suddenly I went to Stoke Newington, I rode into work, I was feeling a bit stressed. Yeah. Like, who cares? So I just uh, took myself out and it worked it better as a read then. It worked a lot better. Um, yeah. And, um, and that was good, and that was the one that went to, you know, went out. I think from um, I was lucky a literary agent was interested, and then sent it out to film companies, etc. And yeah, all good. So, so the obvious last question then is: uh, Have you got another book in mind? Is there going to be another book, or is this a one-off? It's funny you say that. Actually, I've had one in my mind for ages, but my New Year's resolution. You know, everyone asks you what your New Year's resolution is. My New Year's resolution was to write um, the write another book that I've got in my mind. And so, on January the second, I sent out all the emails to the people who I want to interview um, about that. Um, and uh, I'm just going to get on with it and do it. I don't think anyone's going to give me, you know, two months off free, however. But I'm just going to get on with it and do it and see um, and see where that project goes. And is a rough subject matter that you can? I would say inspired by watching um, the refugee crisis. There was a there was a headline in the Mail the other day about um, Channel Tunnel stroller. No, Channel Tunnel um, walker strolls to asylum or something. It was about this Sudanese guy that sort of, you know, 
set off from Sudan on foot and made it across, you know, the Mediterranean in torturous conditions and got through borders and climbed mountains and slept in forests and then broke into the Channel Tunnel, walked through the Channel Tunnel. And, um, you know, he's vilified. And imagine if, you know, imagine if that had been the other way around, if that was a Western person fleeing something and, and, and going through that amount of drama. It would be made into a movie and Steve McQueen would, play him and you know and it would be obviously his dad but you know whoever and you know and and i just thought there's so many amazing stories from those people but you need to find an innovative way to tell their stories so it's not oh you're you know liberal conscience you know telling us that we need to care about this so i've got an idea um about uh about that that i'm working on amazing well thanks very much for speaking with me it's been a pleasure pleasure uh, good luck with the new book cheers man for a transcript of this discussion and for more information, visit thecardiffreader.com. Remember to follow us on Twitter at Cardiff Reader and on Facebook forward slash Cardiff Reader. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll join me again next time for the Cardiff Reader podcast. <laughs>